I'm Richard Schickel. I'll be doing the commentary for Clint Eastwood's Sudden Impact. This is the work of Bruce Surtees, who came to his distinguished career in cinematography as the son of Robert Surtees. He was kind of a um, prince of darkness, along with uh, Gordon Willis and some of the other cinematographers who came into fashion in the 70s and 80s in this country. This was the first of the Dirty Harry films that Clint Eastwood himself directed, and indeed the only one. Surtees, who had been working with him and I think ultimately did 11 or 12 films with Clint, was kind of perfect for Clint. He likes darkness, too. He's really in love with <laughs> low light levels. This is kind of a classic Dirty Harry opening, kind of the uh, helicopter shot into the city. Um, Clint always liked to contextualize uh, Dirty Harry's adventures uh, in San Francisco which is, of course, a place that he grew up across the bay from in Oakland and with which he has a fond and continuing relationship. The sequence, uh, very nicely put together by Joel Cox, who was fairly early at this point in his career as Clint's very, very longtime editor. And it is going to take us uh, eventually to quite a unique and uh, remarkable place. That credit, of course, reflects the uh, invention of that family of screenwriters who uh, began the series with uh, Dirty Harry. Where we're going here is to uh, an extremely dark and pretty scary scene. This film is unique not only in the Dirty Harry series, but I think unique in uh, American film history. That is to say, it is the first and very nearly the only film, certainly the only such film in you know, popular genre filmmaking, that features a woman as a serial killer and indeed a psychopathic serial killer. I think it's one of the things that attracted Clint to this property because this woman was played by Sandra Locke is not at all what she appears to be in this scene. And probably the audience, before they became familiar with the picture, and it was a very popular one, did not expect to see anything of the character of the scene as it's going to develop. kind of beautifully shot. The eyes there are particularly arresting and particularly, I think, uh, alarming. They seem to signify that uh, something not quite right is going to be happening in this scene. 
Of course, the mystery is, and it's going to take some time for it to unfold here, the mystery is, what is she up to? Why is she doing this really pretty terrible act? And, of course, we will be returning to that mystery as the film unreels. transitional moment, her turn to the camera, her enigmatic and yet, you know, slightly menacing air. But here we have to <laughs> get back to more, in terms of the Dirty Harry series, the more routine uh, presentation of our hero, Dirty Harry Callahan. It's interesting in that Clint kind of thought that by this time he was done with Dirty Harry. Uh, I think he felt that he had taken the character about as far as he could go with it, that there was a certain repetitiveness in uh, the character who could not be developed beyond certain limits. But interestingly enough, um, this movie began in a way that Clint would ordinarily have deplored. The studio took a kind of a marketing survey, and they were testing, among other ideas, the notion of bringing back notable stars in their most notable roles. And they were particularly interested in whether the public would like to see Sean Connery return uh, as James Bond. But they had a list of various players, and lo and behold, the survey came out stating that the person they would most like to see again repeating a familiar role was Clint Eastwood as Dirty Harry. Clint said that when they got that survey, the studio bosses said, oh, let's get going on it. How would Friday be for you? It took a little longer than that for uh, the screenwriter, Joseph Stinson, to develop the story. But develop it, he did, and develop it, he did with the kind of unusual presentation of the female character. For the moment, this is Dirty Harry as everybody knows and loves Dirty Harry. You know, a man entirely pissed off with the law enforcement bureaucracy, with the niceties of um, legalisms uh, that prevent a cop from doing his job instinctively and uh, passionately and bloodily. He is what we know him to be, uh, an angry man, a determined man, um, maybe a little bit of an ironist, but still not a guy that you would want to count on for uh, having a good-natured brew and a chat with in a bar. And, of course, he is, as usual, totally job-oriented. We do not have any sense that Harry has any kind of life outside of his work. He is a little bit better dressed in this movie than he was in the earlier ones. His, his jackets fit a little bit better. I wouldn't call him yet a neat freak, but he is uh, not quite the scruffy guy he used to be in Dirty Harry and its subsequent two sequels. 
Hey, Callahan. Don't look so puked out. Better luck next time, fool. <laughs> Listen, punk. To me, you're nothing but dog shit. You understand? And a lot of things can happen to dog shit. It can be scraped up with a shovel off the ground. It can dry up and blow away in the wind. Or it can be stepped on and squashed. So take my advice. Be careful where the dog shit you. As I say, we don't really need to know anything of what we're seeing in this movie. Uh, we know that already. We know that going into a movie. But that precisely is what the public really wants to see in a Dirty Harry movie. It is uh, pleasurable and humorous to see him being this totally angry and uh, totally cool at the same time guy. We're coming up on what is, of course, the signature scene of this movie. The actress uh, playing the coffee shop waitress is Mara Corday, who's an old friend of Clint's, uh, actually been in the same B picture at Universal decades earlier, Tarantula, and she is sending him a signal, of course, with her sugar. She appeared, uh, she quit the screen. She'd been a leading lady in largely B-movies in the 50s. She married the actor Richard Long. And uh, after his uh, premature death, she came back to the screen and worked uh, in two or three other Clint Eastwood movies in small parts. She is one of a number of people we will encounter in Sudden Impact who have these histories with Clint, who is very loyal to actors of his, of a type that he enjoys working with and enjoys seeing. Uh, and I'll introduce them as we move along. real good with that cop. Now I want everything. Money, washes, rings, everything. Oh. Quick, move! Clint understood from the get-go on this movie that uh, the script had a lot of good zappy lines in it. This is one of the first of them coming up here, um, where uh, he's talking about Smith, Wesson, and himself being the equalizers in this situation. A large black coffee. Today she gives me a large black coffee, only it's got sugar in it. A lot of sugar. I just came back to complain. How you boys put those guns down? <laughs> Say what? Whoa. We're not just gonna let you walk out of here. Who's we, sucker? Smith and Wesson and me? <laughs> but probably the line that is the most famous that Clint ever uttered, and one that he would come to regret because, you know, for years afterwards, it's the way people approached him. If they wanted an autograph, they would say, make my day. Um, if they wanted uh, 
anything from him, they would preface it with make my day. As I say, Clint recognized that it was a terrific line and uh, recognized that um, one of the advantages of being Dirty Harry is that he got all the good lines in the movies. That was part of uh, his function in those movies. Go ahead, make my day. What Clint did say uh, when we talked about this uh, some years later, he said he had not expected the line to go ricocheting, his word, around the world. But of course, he was aided uh, in that by the then president, Ronald Reagan, who was in a squabble with uh, the Democrats in, uh, over budgetary issues in Washington, and he threatened to veto a bill cutting taxes and, uh, you know, challenged his opponents by saying, go ahead, make my day. And thus the line passed into legend. One of the things that uh, is characteristic of Dirty Harry movies is that they all begin with a portrait of an extremely busy and indeed virtually sleepless man. Clint, uh, Dirty Harry, is always at the beginning of these movies working a multitude of cases, you know, challenging people, uh, sticking his nose in where it's not really wanted, uh, in particular by his superiors. I mean, he just refuses to handle cases in a routine way, as we're about to see here, when he is about to challenge uh, a mafioso. Do you know the emergency phone number for San Francisco General? Yes, I do. The idea, of course, as always with Dirty Harry, is to upset the criminals, throw them off their accustomed track, uh, make them uh, sufficiently upset so that they will do or say something that will aid in their apprehension. In this particular instance, Dirty Harry is going to uh, really transcend the limits. Obviously, this is a wedding party. Obviously, the man he is confronting, besides being the grandfather of the charming bride, a man with an ugly criminal record, which involves not the usual uh, corruptions of mafia operations, but a sadistic crime against a woman, which I think is quite intentional because we are prefiguring the case that's going to be most preoccupying in this movie. Linda Doker, she was fished out of the bay a month ago with her breast slashed, feet burned, face smashed to a pulp. I read about it. A, a hooker, wasn't she? That is to say, this man has grievously maltreated uh, a woman with whom he had a sexual relationship. Now, it's a nice question. <laughs> Does Harry Callahan know that this man has a weak heart and that he could, with this particular exchange, uh, send this man over um, into cardiac arrest, which is what is about to happen here. Or maybe his family. 
Maybe his ass is in a ringer. No. No. There's no evidence of regret from Harry Callahan at that moment. Sorry, Inspector, but Captain Ibigson. And we'll about to see that this is entirely a con. You know, he had nothing in that envelope. It's simply full of blank paper. On and on it goes. Here we are. It's the next morning. There's yet another case to interest Inspector Callahan. And, of course, it is the case that we began with, case of the murdered man in the car. Some sniffs got himself a 38 caliber vasectomy. <laughs> Harry, he don't look so hot. That night, all nookied out. What we're about to see is one of a couple of scenes in this movie in which Harry gets to vent against the temporizing of the law enforcement agencies as they confront uh, a world kind of gone wild with, at least in the way the movie sees it, gone wild with permissiveness, uh, inability to uh, strictly enforce the letter of the law. Corruption, apathy, and red tape. Now that doesn't bother me. But you know what does bother me? What? You know what makes me really sick to my stomach? What? It's watching you stuff your face with those hot dogs. But of course it's done in a very pleasant and, and amusing way here because the ostensible purpose of the scene is not for Harry to vent, it's to say something insulting about the eating habits of his fellow cop. Again, this is part of, I think, uh, there are just enough of these lines and these moments to have attracted uh, Clint. I mean, it has, the movie has some wit. We get, uh, in this sequence, a chance to learn a little bit more about uh, Jennifer, as played by Sandra Locke. She is a painter. She is an obviously attractive and intelligent woman. She is, you know, wonderfully blank. I think that's one of the interesting aspects of the way this character is played by Sandra Locke. There is a real deep emotional chilliness in this very attractive woman. That has consequences, obviously, as the story develops. Of course, 
But think positive. It's money we'll be sending from the sales. Where will you go? North. To visit someone. Sandra Locke was an actress who began working with uh, Clint about uh, 1975 or 6 in the outlaw Josie Wales. Um, they developed an off-screen relationship that persisted for many years. She appeared in roughly a half dozen of Clint's movies, then went on to direct a couple of movies under his aegis. And, um, Unfortunately, they, their relationship came to a rather bitter end, but of course it was flourishing at this point. The actor here is Bradford Dillman. Uh, he's another Clint vet. He was uh, playing the same role, or at least a very similar one, in a previous Dirty Harry movie, you know, the uptight chief of detectives or whatever he is. Uh, anyway, he's the lead thorn in uh, Dirty Harry's side a prissy man uh, who wants to go by the book, a man who's very much enthralled to his uh, bureaucratic uh, leaders. Are you aware that you have destroyed months of surveillance and intelligence work? I mean, we're talking here thousands of dollars, hundreds of man hours. Special Investigations has been busting its ass preparing a case against Threlkiss. He would have just snaked his way out of it. Maybe we saved the taxpayers a little money. I ought to bust your ass. Dillman is a, a very skilled actor. He, probably the most distinguished thing he did in his career was peer, appear in the original production of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night uh, on Broadway in the 50s. Went on to, uh, you know, fairly steady work as a movie character actor as well as pursuing his stage activities. Um, again, somebody Clint liked to act with and uh, was happy enough to rehire for this movie. The city and this department in terms of publicity and physical destruction and most other men's failures. Probably worth pointing out uh, that Clint Eastwood is in himself dutiful man. I mean, in other words, he felt the studio had given him opportunities to move beyond genres, move beyond the confines of this character and other characters like Dirty Harry. He'd just made Bronco Billy before this movie. He'd made Honky Tonk Man, uh, neither of which were commercially successful movies. And uh, he felt given that, he owed the studio something uh, of a more surefire nature. And certainly Dirty Harry at that time was about as surefire as anything was in American movies. So it's important to understand that Clint would trade off with the studio more popular things uh, with things that were, for Clint at the time, more exotic, uh, more problematical commercially even maybe more problematical critically. He was beginning that phase of his career where he was really reaching out beyond uh, genres. She's in good condition. But she remains in this vegetative state that we've been unable to penetrate. We can't even get a primitive startle response out of her. 
Uh, we're going to keep trying. We're always hopeful. At this point, of course, we do not know uh, what it is that is driving Jennifer Spencer uh, to the crime we've witnessed and to the crimes we're going to shortly be witnessing. She is presented as an enigma. And in this scene, we begin to understand what is driving her, she and her sister. Uh, have been, in the past, about 10 years ago, we're given to understand, been brutally victimized uh, in a gang rape situation, which has left uh, her sister, who was much younger, in a catatonic condition, and a condition that appears to be uh, a hopeless one. There doesn't seem to be any particular possibility uh, of curing her of this totally broken down uh, state that she's in. This says nothing about whatever feelings her older sister Jennifer has about what happened to her on that occasion, but she is at least functioning uh, in the real world, and uh, more than that, functioning secretly as a vengeful killer. He just appeared on the street in front of me. First I thought I was having some horrible vision. But now he was there. Older and uglier. I followed him. For days I watched him. Then I bought a gun. I followed him to a bar, let him pick me up, let him drive me to a deserted spot, let him think. I think it's fair to say, in kind of mild criticism of the film, that there is a disconnect between the seriousness of the issues, moral and psychological, that Sandra Locke is dealing with in her part of this movie and the issues that Harry Callahan is dealing with in his part of the movies. Uh, there is, you know, a kind of a jocularity about Harry Callahan, uh, at least about the way he is presented. I mean, we are encouraged to laugh at his knotheadedness. We are not obviously encouraged to laugh at anything that the Sandra Locke character is enduring. And I don't think the movie quite manages a seamless uh, joining of those two aspects of the film. There is clearly something very, very conventionalized, cops and robbers, uh, in this sequence. I mean, we have seen sequences like this in the past. These guys are, of course, uh, soldiers of capos of the uh, mafioso that uh, <laughs> Clint <laughs> brought to uh, death's door in the sequence in the banqueting room. And, um, you know, they're out for vengeance, and they will be uh, in fairly hot pursuit of uh, Harry Callahan, 
not for the entire movie, but for much of its early going. I mean, this is a very busy movie. There are a lot of a lot of cases on Harry's plate. This is probably the most menacing of those cases. I mean, these guys are professional uh, hitmen. I think it is worth pointing out that this is quite a well-directed film. I think, setting the original Dirty Harry aside, which is directed by Don Siegel, I think it is directed with more care than other films in the series. The lighting, uh, Clint's work with uh, Bruce Surtees is really very, very fine in this movie. And it is also handsomely edited and put together with real style and real uh, panache. There's, uh, there's nothing casual or easily commercial in the way the movie is uh, directed. As police movies go, it's very much a step up in class. to spend the night off, Harry. You joining the act, too? No, for Christ's sakes. Back off a little. Because I'm worried about your ass. You're going to get it well, shot up. Back right in a familiar place, on the carpet again. This is not something that is uncommon in the life and times of Harry Callahan. People saying, hey, take a rest, take a vacation. You know, cool out a little bit, chill out a little bit. Um which is not something he particularly wants to do or ever wants to do in any of his adventures. But um, they're going to make this one stick. He will uh, be given an assignment uh, that will take him out of the city, take him away, uh, as his bosses see it, from uh, uh, mortal danger. Not that that worries Harry very much. I guess this is Harry Callahan's idea of a vacation. Why not go out in the countryside and sharpen up your uh, skills with a very large gun?
It is a magnum of a kind, um, but uh, it's much more uh, an elaborate uh, piece of weaponry than the 44 magnum that Clint made famous in Dirty Harry. This actor here is Albert Popwell. And uh, Popwell appeared in four of the Dirty Harry movies, as well as many, many other movies. Um, again, he's kind of one of Clint's talismans. You will perhaps remember him as the guy on the ground, wounded outside the bank, uh, in the opening sequences of Dirty Harry. Uh, he's the guy who gets to utter what I think is one of the immortal movie lines, which is after Harry has apparently emptied his gun, but nobody's quite sure if he has, uh, says, I gots to know, meaning, you know, did you fire all the bullets in your gun or have you got one more left for me? Here he's playing uh, a cop colleague and about as close to a friend as Harry has uh, on the police force. It's interesting, Harry always tends to have one pal on the force, and he usually represents uh, some sort of a minority, a Hispanic, a black man, another film, an aging and unfit man who, uh, you know, is not at all cop-like in his attitude. There was always a signaling uh, in Dirty Harry's adventures that however rough he was on the cops, on the bureaucracy, on the people who were his ostensible superiors, uh, that he was a man totally without prejudice, a man whose only way of judging another police officer was at the level of the man's competence. And, uh, you know, it's the nice element in Dirty Harry. It makes us sympathetic to him. And uh, I think there's another thing that makes us sympathetic to Harry. And that's the fact that he does represent the impatience uh, that was growing in America with the way things were working uh, in our country. A certain sense that we had fallen away from our best standards, that we were lost in all kinds of moral ambiguity, of, uh, you know, not being as righteous as we had once been. I don't know if that's historically true or not, but within the context of these movies, it is something that people identified with, offered their affection to uh, Harry Callahan for representing what they saw as their interests, um, socially, sociologically speaking. It's a wee bit deserted out there in Westcliff, but I thought you might appreciate the solitude as you seek inspiration and all that. The house is lovely. Well, I've left the fridge and the cupboard stock for you, and there's uh, firewood for fire. 
And uh, let's see. This uh, return, I mean, this is uh, the place that uh, Clint loves best. Uh, in, uh, it's where he lives. It's uh, somewhere on the Monterey Peninsula. Um, and uh, it represents for Jennifer a return to the scene of the crime. Uh, it is on this boardwalk near to this uh, carousel that uh, she and her sister uh, encountered the crime that changed their lives forever. She's coming back. She's going to restore the carousel, uh, use her skills as an artist in that way. But clearly what she means to do uh, is finish the job, finish all of the men who so grievously tormented her and her sister. The remembering uh, in this film will be in fragments. Um, it's interesting that the process begins not at night, but uh, in daylight hours, um, and that it is the crimes, uh, the rapes, uh, and the beatings um, are not uh, presented fully. Uh, they're brutal, but they are not, um, they're not exploitative, uh, I feel, in terms of the way they are presented. There's a, a, a good deal of discretion uh, in the staging of these sequences. requires any kind of extensive commentary. The most interesting aspect of it is uh, the female character who, whose 
brother, I think. I think it's his brother. Uh, let's just say it. I, the female character uh, will remind you, uh, I think, of the Mercedes McCambridge character in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. She's the woman who's involved with the violating men, egging them on, encouraging them, and somehow getting off on seeing uh, a member of her own sex being degraded. Um, it's an interesting character, and again, not an entirely usual character uh, in movies. what the hell dog shit is, Callahan. Come on, let's go kick some ass. say this movie are kind of an everything but the kitchen sink quality to the movie i mean in other words this is the guy that clint tried to bust in the earlier courtroom sequence and is now getting his revenge on uh dirty harry um as i say it's non-stop i mean every few minutes somebody comes out of the darkness usually the darkness to uh assault Harry Callahan, and, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun at some level. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lot of improbable, too. <laughs> but I don't think we particularly care about that. I mean, you know, some portion of the audience, maybe all of us in the audience, you know, really grooved on the fact that uh, these pictures were so nonstop. Uh, in terms of the number of threats and the inventiveness of the threats posed uh, to uh, Harry Callahan. But as I mentioned before, I'm not entirely certain that the fact that he is so constantly under pressure is good for the larger, bigger uh, points that the film wants to make. That's your idea, rest and recreation? What the hell's wrong with you? Briggs has gone berserk and the commissioner's climbing up my ass. Sorry to hear about that. Damn it, Harry, can't you do anything the easy way? Look, am I on the job or not? Yes, you are. Good. Then I'll get to it. It's not what you think. Oh? You remember that cockshot stiff out by the cliff house? Yeah. He's been in the city a few years, mostly clean, but definitely out in the city. Okay, now this is it. This is the final warning. You will get out of town. Harry Callahan, you will take a rest. Well, it won't be a rest. You're going to be doing a little investigative work about the um, man who had the uh, 38 caliber vasectomy, as the movie puts it. I mean, Harry thinks he's being fobbed off, and uh, he is being fobbed off. But the thing is, you can't really fob off a Harry Callahan, you know. 
trouble is his business, trouble will follow him, and of course, uh, far from getting a rest, um, he will be drawn deeper and deeper into the investigation of this crime. Swell. I think one of the things that is interesting about Clint when he's doing these kinds of genre pictures is he takes them seriously. He will take the time to make the big, beautiful helicopter shot or boom shot or whatever is required. You know, he is not notably a quick director. We think of him as a quick director because the pictures uh, are often so action-packed and, and so full of conflict and all that, but um, the pictures are rather long. I mean, this is not a little 90-minute genre piece. It's a full-scale, two-hour feature movie with a lot of grace notes in it. What can one say? He's just driving along a street, and the next thing he knows, there's a, a robbery taking place, a pursuit is about to take place. And this is kind of really what's nice about these films. Clint will find a way to uh, make the chase something other than routine. I mean, the nearest vehicle here <laughs> happens to be a bus belonging to a retirement center, and uh, which is of no consequence to him. It's got a motor and he can drive it. Um, what's kind of fun about it is that um, there are retirees on board the bus. Police officer in pursuit of a robbery suspect. Hang on. Of course, they're actually going to enjoy it, I mean, in their dull, you know, retirement home routines. This is really kind of a kick. It's the kind of uh, humor that I think is characteristic, not just of Clint's Dirty Harry movies, but of a lot of his movies. There's always a kind of a search for a novel way of doing things that have been conventionalized to death in uh, similar movies. 
And uh, this is also something that is uh, going to serve to introduce Harry and uh, the lady. And in fact, the guy, the cop who was involved in this altercation earlier, uh, will become his ally in the police force that he is visiting. So, you're the famous Harry Callahan. Well, Harry, I'm going to make this short and sweet. I'm only going to say it once. The chief of that force is played by Pat Hingle. Uh, again, very, very good in uh, Clint's earlier movie, The Gauntlet, uh, which I think is a very underrated Clint action film. Um, Hingle is, was, is a, you know, distinguished stage actor. Um, he had been in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Dark at the Top of the Stairs, J.B., all films uh, directed by Aaliyah Kazan and, you know, featuring um, method acting. And uh, again, he fit in with Eastwood's uh, kind of people, somebody that <laughs> Clint enjoyed working with. I don't know how he felt about dogs. Uh, <laughs> but this is, you have to say, a perfect dirty hairy dog, isn't he? Uh, you know, a not particularly attractive or adorable creature, but one with, um, as it will happen, a spirit that kind of uh, appeals to dirty hairy. <laughs> Swell. It is a man who is confronting an animal who will uh, do what he needs to do when he needs to do it and not ask any questions about it. exactly constitute meeting cute uh sort of cute i suppose anyway we've got to get these people into uh into some kind of intimacy some kind of connection is that your dog yeah why do you want him listen buster if you can't control him get a leash there are laws quiet and of course this being dirty hairy uh there has to be a certain amount of contentiousness uh, in their meeting. Quiet! This way, Inspector. Uh, this is it, Inspector. The coffee room's down the hall, the John's on the other side of it. And uh, that's all I think I'll get back to work. The nicest work yesterday, Inspector. It was me. You saved my life. 
One of the things Clint said about making a movie um, in which the female character has such a prominent role is that when he was growing up and going to the classic American movies of the late 30s and 40s, um, female stars were entirely the equals of the male stars. They traded quip for quip with them. Um, they were seen as independent, in charge of their lives, and all of that. And Clint felt at the time, I do believe still feels, that, you know, an actress has a right to be something a good deal more than eye candy. And so uh, that's one reason that he um, gave so prominent a role to uh, uh, Sandra Locke. And again, I think this is something that Clint has talked about. It makes the male star's role easier. He doesn't have to carry the entire picture. Uh, I think it's especially important for Clint when he is directing himself. He needs some time to, uh, you know, do scenes in which he's not involved. But more importantly, um, it makes good sense. Uh, there needs to be a kind of a gender balance in movies, and they have been out of balance, I think, for most people think, for decades. And... Uh, there is something about the establishment of this strong and interesting character as Eastwood's co-equal in the movie uh, that serves the movie well and serves his own interests as a filmmaker very well. Come on, sailor. I know there's some question you want to ask me. Go ahead. You might get lucky. Only with humans. This little sequence here. Looking for trouble, pal? You may or may not believe me, but it is a representation of Clint's notion that everybody is equal uh, in his movies. That is to say, if the woman is offensive, if she lips off and so forth, she's going to get the same kind of treatment that men get. I mean, uh, Dirty Harry is a practitioner of equal opportunity contempt. Um, that's not necessarily true of Eastwood in real life. But yet there is a certain sense about him, if you know him, of treating people pretty much all the same, no matter what their age, their gender, their interests. It's one of the good qualities about Clinton. It's one of the qualities that makes him uh, an extremely likable human being.
so now, in a sense, it begins. Um, the fact of Jennifer stalking one by one the men against whom uh, she uh, carries a powerful animus. And it brings us to something we will be obliged to consider throughout this movie. And that is just how psychotic is this woman. She has been given a rationale for her crimes. Uh, there's no question about that. On the other hand, what she is doing is, by any conventional standards, uh, wrong and, uh, and powerfully so. This is, um, as I think I said earlier, a remarkable turnaround in the conventions of presenting psychotic criminality in a movie. We do not expect it uh, from a woman. We especially don't expect it from a woman with the appearance of Sandra Locke. There is something, something fragile about her. And it's, of course, one of the things that uh, Clint exploited uh, in not just in this movie, in several of the movies that he made with her. The fragility contrasting with the inner toughness of this woman. And it is extremely uh, potent uh, on the screen. There's an irony in it. Uh, there's a mystery in it. And, you know, there's a shock value in it. I mean, when she hauls out that gun, even though we're pretty certain that it's bound to happen in this scene, it has a, it has a power to it that a woman of less fragility in manner and appearance would not have. And there's a kind of brutal deadliness in her mask-like qualities. I mean, one of the things I like about this performance quite a bit is the fact she never, never changes her expression no matter what she's doing. Well, what do you know? He's really a police dog. Not, in other words, just another pretty face. <laughs> and, uh... You know, he really has turned out to be Dirty Harry's kind of guy, isn't he? Job-oriented, unpretentious, getting it done. He's a real solid guy who does his job. You know, when 
Clint was making this movie, he was interviewed on the set by no less a figure than Norman Mailer, uh, the novelist, who took quite a shine to Clint, incidentally. Clint confessed to him that he wasn't sure how far he could take this character, whether he should be taking him anywhere at all anymore, that maybe he had pretty well exhausted uh, Dirty Harry. Um, I don't think he had, but I think this movie, because of the issues it raises, however imperfectly it raises them, I think he energized Clint. I think he felt that it was at least aspiring to go to some other place that Dirty Harry had not been before. Mailer, of course, responded to uh, Clint, as you might expect, as a kind of existential hero, a kind of guy who makes things up as he goes along uh, within the context of a set of fairly simple beliefs. It's fair to say that uh, there's a certain mysterious depth to the character played by Pat Hingle. I mean, he is obviously, certainly by this time, someone who's indicating that he has um, some sort of deeper emotional involvement in these crimes than he's letting on that he's not just a busy police chief trying to keep the lid on his little town, that there are issues here that he doesn't want to admit to. It is also true that Harry, you know, when he's standing, staring at pictures on the police chief's wall, uh, is, is twigging that too, that this guy is not just uh, a cop who's kind of irritated because a big city cop has come down into his little pond and is stirring it up. Uh, there's more to it than that. It's an interesting scene in that this woman is, of course, you know, a crude and vulgar woman, and this is a guy who has a little more sensitivity and a little bit more regret about the past than the other participants in the crime against Jennifer and her sister. I don't care, Ray. Same thing happened to Wilburn up in San Francisco. Wilburn? Yeah. Remember him? He's dead. Once, twice, I don't care. There is an attempt in this film, I think, uh, probably because of the nature of the fact that it's a group crime, that leads it a little bit toward an exploration of human vagaries in a uh, small-town context. Um, I'm not sure it particularly gets into any depth in that, uh, but it is an attempt, and I think that's true of this whole movie. It's a movie that's kind of bifurcated um, in that it has aspirations to be something other than a police drama, 
and yet it has uh, its obligations to the conventions uh, of the policier. It's a movie that doesn't quite achieve its higher aspirations. I do think it achieves its minimal aspirations, which is to be, you know, a kind of a suspenseful cop picture. And be prepared, Boy Scout. This uh, male character is going to be, you know, the central character as this story begins its final unfolding. He, he is the major antagonist, uh, and, you know, he is the sadist, the psychopath, the guy that uh, we really, truly, fully loathe in this movie. the great and famous director, said that basically a movie is five or six crucial scenes and that all the other scenes in between them uh, are just things that need to be got through for purposes of the story or a little bit of character development but are not to be stressed or emphasized. And I think that's very true, in particularly true, in this movie. I mean, it's got a lot of business going on but it only has a handful of scenes that are completely on target, completely at the center of its narrative development. And it is possible that in the way the movie is structured, it lingers a little bit too long on scenes like the one in the Nevada Hotel, which I don't think adds greatly to our knowledge of that figure. Oh, yeah, I got him. Almost as ugly as you are. He does have his good points, though. Could you wire out that report first thing in the morning? It is part of the busyness of this movie, and uh, I think the busyness is conscious. I mean, we want to see that this is a guy who is constantly harassed uh, by the need to accomplish a lot in a short span of time, uh, to balance all his cases, to balance all... Uh, the issues he has uh, with the variety of matters before him. Jesus, if Keith Jennings finds out, he won't. Just give me the information any way you can. The names, where they are, where they were. It's not going to be easy, Inspector. I, mean, I don't dare risk taking that photo off his wall. One other thing. Could you get me a Kruger sheet? Anything else? 
It's a little Dirty Harry theme. There's nearly always in his movies a young cop in need of instruction, uh, somebody who, <laughs> I hate to use the word, but that Harry's kind of mentoring. Uh, not that Harry or anybody uh, like him would ever confess to mentoring anybody. You from the insurance company, pal? No, and if you don't want to buy some of these fish, why don't you get your ass out of here? Mr. Kruger, my name's Callahan. You got shit in your ears, buddy? I'd like to ask you a few questions about your late husband. That lousy son of a bitch. He leaves me nothing. I'm up to my ass and bills. He let the insurance run out. And then he gets killed looking at dirty pictures when he ain't even touched me in months, the bastard. Say, did you see our sisters in mourning? I think this scene is very largely here for the kicker that's on the end of it. Don't even think about it. The line Harry utters about everyone's bereavement. Well, I'll come back when you're less bereaved. I think it's a very funny line. I think there are a lot of funny lines in this movie. And the nice thing is that most of them, make my day aside, are, are scenes that... Um, are kind of tossed off. I mean, the lines are kind of tossed off. There's not a lot of emphasis on them. And I think that that's very much part of the kind of naturalism Clint applies to his stagings of movies that are obviously fantastic uh, in some sense. Well, somebody told us to get it together. I have a feeling you've heard that before. Sorry if I was a little gruff the other day, but you and your friend did take me by surprise. Well, buy me a beer and we'll call it even. Stay me here. People, when uh, this movie came out, couldn't resist the line that um, Sandra Locke's character was Dirty Harriet. I suppose that's true. The difference being that, of course, um, Harry is always in control of himself, of his emotions, even of the more deadly matters that uh, keep cropping up in his life. Control is his issue. And uh, although our dirty Harriet appears to be in control, I mean, that is to say, she chooses the moment when she's going to strike. She is very cool uh, in her behavior at those moments. But nonetheless, you know, we cannot escape the fact that there is something uh, profoundly wrong with this woman. I mean, uh, even though she's been given all the motive she requires to uh, justify her activities, the fact is that they are beyond normalcy, shall we say. Sorry, I'm sure you get that sort of thing all the time. It makes a difficult uh, 
fine line for an actress to tread, I think. And um, beyond that, it makes a, a difficult line for all of us to tread as we watch the movie develop. I paint. Paint? Houses, cars, what? Horses. Horses? Hobby horses. I'm restoring the carousel here. Somehow you don't seem like the typical San Paolo policeman. I'm not. Typical? San Paolo. San Francisco PD, homicide. Don't tell me this is your idea of a vacation. Now I'm down here on a case. Just gathering information in general. Anything interesting? The question of romantic interest uh, comes up in this scene. I mean, to a degree, at that level, the movie has been proceeding along a fairly routine line, that is to say. Attractive man, attractive woman, people with interests, shall we say, in common, getting to know one another and getting to uh, perhaps like one another. I do feel, and it's a feeling that only came over me re-seeing this movie uh, recently, I do feel that Harry is more than usually wary uh, of this woman. I mean, heaven knows he's wary enough with uh, women with any sort of emotional involvement. <laughs> there was a certain amount of criticism of the dog's bad behavior in the critical press, uh, but um, I don't know. He's. Uh, He's, he's a hairy-like dog. Do you feel a certain sameness in this uh, film, a certain sense of, oh, here we go again? I mean, I think it's an endemic problem with a movie of this kind, uh, a movie in which we have a serial killer who must exercise her impulse, her irresistible impulse to murder. fancy rationale this guy's currently going to offer her. Oh, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing. I was forced into it. Uh, I'm really a respectable person. Um, I'm willing to even give you money. 
uh, if you'll leave me alone. These are pleas falling on very deaf ears. It's a slight change in what we've had going on. Each of the transactions that she has with her victims, you know, the guy in the car who just is out for a good time, the guy on the beach who really doesn't quite understand who she is or recognize her, this guy who has been prepared for her coming and re really needs to try and assert his uh, late-blooming respectability. They're all at least variants on the theme, and I suppose in that sense, uh, the screenwriter doing the best he can, you know, to give us some variance on uh, what amounts to a certain sameness of activity. It's always the same old story with Harry, isn't it? Um, there is a great eagerness to get him off the case, no matter what, no matter where he is, uh, small town, big town. He is a pest. He is a nuisance. He is the possessor of the moral fervor that most of us uh, have diminished, turned aside uh, for the pleasures of uh, a routine life, of uh, not having to stick your neck out on a daily basis. I think you'll find they match up perfectly. So that's the story, kid. So, a little college hardy's collecting dues, huh? Yeah, you got it. Heads up. So, what are we gonna do? It's nothing. This town's got thousands of people. Maybe she's not even staying here. How do we find her? We don't. What do you mean? We went in. Coming after you too sometime, right? I suppose. That would be here. In a certain sense, this is an over-explained movie, I think. It perhaps spends a little too much more time on making sure we understand everybody's really very quite primitive mo motives in the movie. Um, you know, again, I don't find it tiresome because the characters are interesting enough and uh, strong enough for uh, 
us to be kind of interested in what's going on in their addled and twisted minds. This is a fairly routine scene in the sense that yet another crime has been committed. Uh, the police chief is saying he's doing the best he can uh, in his routine way. He's irritated, of course, by the fact that his budget is being shot by this, uh, you know, series of uh, inexplicable murders. Um, all that is reasonable enough. Um, I think he's entitled to be a little cranky with Harry Callahan. But, you know, there's something that we know and Harry knows uh, that the man is hiding, and we don't know quite what it is at this point. Aren't you curious as to why I was here? the taciturnity of Eastwood. I love the fact that he never wastes a word in his movies. Uh, you could have written something for him at the end of that confrontation uh, with Pat Hingle's character, but isn't a look dubious and challenging and slightly hostile? Isn't that better than a mouthful of words? the stress on her eyes. Eyes that are almost, well, no, not unseeing, but unblinking. So, come to the party I told you about? Oh, I can't. My, my sister's visiting. Yeah? She a college girl, too? No, she's a junior in high school. The eyes are, uh, I think, right. in this film, very much More a motif. I don't think so. What's the matter? Us locals not good enough for you? It's not bad. I, you don't understand. Oh, just a quick reference right. to class issues, which uh, come up a lot in Dirty, Dirty Harry movies. You know, there are people in these films who are very conscious of the differences between the well-off and the less well-off. It's an issue that Eastwood in his films is more aware of, I think, than most of us recognize. interesting scene here. Again, it's a kind of subtle hint of a subcurrent. 
which I think has to do with sexual frustration, which somehow accounts for the woman's presence in the historic scene, the rape and brutalization of the two women. This is Callahan. Can I talk to Bennett? I'll catch you through. Bennett here. Bennett, would you run a plate for me? One Adam Queen Ida, 175. Uh, Inspector. Thanks. to ask you a few questions. It's the second time that's happened to uh, that lady at the hands of Clint. Sex and violence. Uh, I suppose you could argue, uh, if you were not feeling, if you were feeling negative about this movie, that the equation between sex and violence is very, very potent in it. The two are often present in the same scene. It's a nice touch. How's your slut beer. A variant um, on the usual way of dispatching one of these people. She goes for the breasts, not for the genitals. The painting, the manifestation uh, of her anguish, the inner life expressed on the canvas.
little late for wave watching, isn't it? I couldn't sleep. Beer? Thanks. Not safe to be out alone after dark. Life's full of risks, isn't it? I better go home. Thanks for the beer. Did you bicycle down here? No, I walked. It relaxes me. Well, I'll give you a ride home. Oh, that's all right. It's okay. It relaxes me. something stronger to drink than beer? Come on in. This to me is the most enigmatic uh, scene in the movie. First of all, we're surprised that the Jennifer character has even the slightest sexual interest. One would have thought that she was too traumatized, as rape victims so often are, to uh, even think about uh, a sexual encounter, even with somebody like Dirty Harry. I'm not sure I am persuaded by this scene. It seems to me one of those scenes that we expect in movies. We would, uh, be happy if they are happy uh, with the ensuing event. I have a rule. Never drink with a critic. You want to be alone tonight, Callahan? Neither do I. But I somehow in this movie just don't feel like it's something that would happen between these two people at this particular moment. It is probably necessary, in a way, uh, for the development of the rest of the movie. Certainly, it sets up this compromise. That's the license number he telephoned in and asked to have checked. It is the license on this woman's car. He now can put two and two together and realize that he has, as we might say, been sleeping with the enemy. Okay, Harry, wake up, sucker. 
The heat's off and we're gonna celebrate. <laughs> Again, I'm not entirely certain about the meaning of that scene either. send somebody out to Ray Parkin's place. She's getting ripe. And have that punk uh, brought down the interrogation room. I've got to ask him some questions. Oh, sorry, Inspector, but he's been released. Oh, who sprung him? Kruger's brother-in-law picked him up less than an hour ago. Swell. Oh, Inspector, I'll get that license plate number you wanted. Uh, no, 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 forget about that. That turned out to be nothing. Thanks. It is one of the truisms of Dirty Harry movies that at some point he must get the tar beaten out of him. It's, uh, I guess it's something that, you know, is, happens to modern movie heroes uh, to a degree and with a brutality that was not characteristic of earlier cop films. pace of her crimes is accelerating. She obviously feels the net beginning to tighten somewhat more around her. 
Well, one mystery is here about to be unraveled. and involvement between the police chief, uh, this lad who was one of her assailants, and her. He couldn't live with him. The other vermin didn't care. But the guilt ate his gut like an acid. He actually wanted you to come back. He used to sit at nights waiting, praying that you'd come back. One night he couldn't wait any longer. He just got in his car, he drove off, smashed himself into a retaining wall. Now you're here and he doesn't even know it. My fault. I should have let him be punished then, along with the other filth. But he's my only child. His mother died giving birth to him. And we're all each other have, and I was afraid for him. I was afraid for me. You see, I was a public figure. So I did things. I fixed it. And now I want you to just go. Let it end. There's one left. And I've got him in my jail. And you just leave him to me. He prayed on Albie, prayed on me ever since. That, too, is going to end. Oh, is that so, Lester boy? What we have here, of course, is the best possible argument um, for her to cease and desist from her crime wave. The Hingle character is persuasive. This what you had in mind for me. And I think she is almost persuaded. But, you know. I guess you'd have to say psychopathy speaks to psychopathy. The more gibbering sort of psychopathy, the more conventionally movie kind of psychopathy, speaking to the less conventional form of it. Hey, you almost fucked up here, Lester. But don't worry, I'm gonna take care of everything. And you won't have to do a damn thing but sit on your fat ass. <laughs> but first, me and the little babe gonna relive some old times. 
You didn't say nothing about doing it, Chief. Don't sweat it. It's a freebie. Using her gun, of course. We signed our little honey's name to it. piss him off. <laughs> I guess we could say no more fooling around. again you think you can get it up this time think you can make it work this time if you want me you filthy maggot you take me because this time you'll have to rape my dead body well she will give almost as good as she gets Good scene. It will develop into something with some real color to it and some real interest uh, cinematically, I think. And it's kind of a surprise. One that's sort of forgotten the carousel. Hold it. 
When this movie came out, it was received critically much more favorably than most of the Dirty Harry movies had been uh, received. Clint had not yet quite achieved the repute he would within a decade uh, enjoy in the critical community. But there was an interesting, uh, I'm going to read from a review by David Denby in uh, The New Yorker. He says, the movie made contact with a stratum of pessimism that runs very deep in this country, sort of lumpen despair that goes beyond or beneath politics. Uh, in movies of this sort, America is a failure or disgrace, a country run on the basis of expediency and profit, a country that has betrayed its ideals. The attack is directed not merely at liberals and permissiveness, but at something more fundamental the modern bureaucratic state and capitalism itself. Now, I think that's a little grand. I mean, these are just a bunch of punks, uh, rapists, uh, and she is a woman who has been driven around the bend by their depredations. But I do think the notion uh, that we were out of conventional control beginning in the 60s and proceeding through the 70s and 80s, I think there's something in that. I don't think you can make much out of capitalism and the bureaucratic state in a sequence like this. But you can say that anarchy had been loosed upon a country that prided itself on order. And that cop pictures like this certainly did their best to rub our nose in that kind of chaos kind of chaos is represented by this scene uh, and by the uh, brutality of it. Holy shit. Again, this is a beautifully shot, iconic scene, you know, with Clint all blacklit there and with an enormous gun in his hand. I mean, we are grateful to see him. And I think all those arguments that circled around the first Dirty Harry, did he represent some kind of native fascism, which was nonsensical, of course, are put to rest in this scene. I think, uh, as David Thompson, the film historian, put it, there was a very shrewd judgment on Clint's part, I think primarily on Clint's part. There was an authentic sense in the public uh, that things had swung too far, that the pendulum had swung too far, uh, and that, you know, some kind of muscular assertion of the old orderliness was required in our lives. I'm not sure that's occurred, but uh, in movies like this, at least it occurs.
So, setting aside the critical favor this movie found, uh, even though there was certain dubiety about whether Clint had really resolved the issues between popular filmmaking and more serious filmmaking, whether or not those had been resolved, the truth is it was a hugely popular movie. Uh, I don't know that it was more popular in inflation-adjusted dollars than the first Dirty Harry had been, but it was an enormous success uh, at the box office. It satisfied, uh, as I say, some kind of yearning that was deeper than the kind of yearnings that are on the surface of the plot. being set up here, oddly enough, is a repetition of the famous scene in the coffee shop. Now, here, the woman is now reverted from her state of, you know, demonic avenger, and she is almost conventionally a damsel in distress. we need the repetition of the make my day line. Come on. Make my day. Hey. That's not a bad idea, is it? I think we got it without him saying it. But it makes the original coffee shop scene seem much less casual and much more intentional in the context of this movie. This sequence here puts me in mind, oddly enough, of another famous crime movie, that is to say, The Maltese Falcon. Again, a guilty woman and a righteous officer of the law, like Bogart in that movie, he understands that the woman he likes, at least, if not loves, in that movie he chose to send her over, as he put it. Instead, I think we see here not an attempt to put her in jail or anything like that. What I do see, I think, romantic ambivalence in it. I don't think that this is a relationship that's going to go very far beyond this. I think this woman actually scares Dirty Harry in a certain way. And uh, I think that ambivalence at the end of the movie, that sense that they are not going to uh, walk off into a romantic sunrise, is significant in the movie and important to it. I think it's rescues some sort of integrity by having Harry 
have at best ambivalent feelings uh, about the woman who has entered his life and whom he has finally rescued, perhaps not rescued from danger, but I think possibly rescued from her self, uh, from her deeply damaged self. That's something we will never know. But it is, as these kinds of movies go, quite an excellent movie. It's gripping, it's tough-minded, it may not achieve its absolutely highest aspirations, but it achieves something that most cop genre movies do not, which is to bring us to a state of a certain amount of thoughtfulness and a certain amount of useful unease. David Anson, for example, in Newsweek, observed that, you know, Clint wanted to take his character to deeper, murkier waters, uh, but that he didn't quite plunge that far into it because of the genre obligations he had. And he found the movie interesting and a little bit confused. I think that's fair comment on it. I do think, though, that this was a giant step forward directorially for Clint. I mean, he is risking a sort of artiness in this thing, which was something that he wasn't deeply fond of doing. He's a very direct and realistic filmmaker. But by taking the chance, I think he signals his ambitions, uh, signals that he wants to move beyond mere genre filmmaking. And some of the movies that would follow this one, Tightrope would be a good example, a Western or two that he did before Unforgiven, they all bespoke a new ambition to move beyond, you know, simple genre work. And of course, that's the place he's come to now in his work. I mean, he don't do Westerns anymore and he really doesn't do crime pictures. Uh, he's interested in a much wider range of human emotion and human behavior. But all of that starts here, and it starts with this, you know, really amazing career of this man who begins in spaghetti westerns and television series, and uh, without ever once announcing his desire to go further, you know, does go further, and does instinctively head toward much more meaningful statements than mere cop pictures. But fact of the matter is we did feel anarchism loosed on the world in this period of time. And we did want someone as righteous as Dirty Harry to, at least in our fantasy life, our movie life, banish it. <laughs>